0: It's Phil from The Hendrix Project. In this episode I talk about putting this project together and the difficulties we faced. Later on you'll hear a mind-blowing revelation by a visiting friend after a few wines too many late at night. Enjoy. So a lot of people ask me where do you start when putting together a, a Jimi Hendrix tribute show or, or in fact any kind of tribute show? And the answer is, well, you start at the start, like everything else. You start with a blank canvas, and you work through things slowly and carefully, and make sure you do many, many, many passes of the song that you're trying to learn. Because a tribute show is different. Um, You know, it's unlike just being in a regular covers band. Being in a tribute show, you need to make sure you pretty much play exactly what people are used to hearing on rock radio, you know? Obviously there's lots of different versions of Jimmy's stuff when he played it live, but they're not expecting you to uh, jam loosely on a few chords that resemble one of Jimmy's songs. They're not expecting are that you do your own arrangement creatively of one of Jimmy's famous songs, they are expecting exactly how they're used to hearing it. So that's a big difference, because when you're a regular covers band, you know, you can just, uh, you can take that creative license with people's arrangements, people's chord progressions, and that kind of thing, and um, there's a bit more wiggle room for you to do that kind of stuff. But as a tribute show, it better sound damn close to the record, man. Damn close, if not exactly. Now, it's an interesting thing because coupled with that is the fact that Jimmy used to jam a lot of these songs live and for every pretty much different version or different time he played songs like Hear My Trainer Come In. He played them differently, different tempos, different feels. And um, you know, depending on what kind of mood he was in. So, when we first put this thing together, I said to the guys, "Look, it has to be exactly like the record, as as close as we can with the skills we have." Which, let's be honest, the skills any mere mortal has compared to the skills of Jimi Hendrix are acutely diminished compared to Jimmy's talent. So. all our energy into getting it exactly how it was on the record so that was for the kind of first three or four months that's exactly what we focused on then we did our shows then after we'd done two or three shows and we'd settled into it you know probably after month six of of you know playing the stuff then we all kind of came to the conclusion that at that point now we were settled in now we had the exactly like the record versions under our fingers, then there was a little bit of room to enter into the songs as Jimmy and the Experience had, which was basically, let's jam this. So, it's kind of a bit of a, it's an argument that goes both ways, I guess because you wanna make damn sure you like the record. But at the same time, if you are exactly like the record in terms of the licks and everything, that's what people are expecting. But in terms of the length of songs, you have a very short set if you played Jimi Hendrix songs exactly like they are on the record for the following historical, factual reason. And that is that rock radio back in the 60s did not play any songs that were longer than three minutes on the radio. So all of Jimi Hendrix's recorded versions of songs in the early days are less than three minutes. So you could have a whole bunch of Jimi songs, but if they're all three minutes, um, actually they doesn't add up to be much of a set in terms of duration and set length because they ran um, so briefly. Um, Even things like um, Ain't No Telling off the uh, Axis Bolt of Love album, I think it runs to 2 minutes and 10 seconds. Now that's almost over before it started. And so it's those kind of things that we have expanded on. You know, maybe extended solos, um, extended intros, that kind of thing to just just open them up a bit. Because they need that. You can't play a two-minute song. It's, it's, you know, people don't want to be entertained for two minutes anymore. And it's a different context. You know, listening to it on the radio back in the '60s is different to experiencing it live. And and I think that is why. Jimmy took such creative license with his arrangements and durations of songs when he played live because he was almost restricted to what he could do to get, in, um, get everything he wanted in the song into a three-minute statement, otherwise it wouldn't even get played. And you know, as, a, as an artist, the last thing you want is to not be played on rock radio because in the 60s, that was pretty much your only conduit apart from playing live. To get your stuff out there. And so we've entered into that spirit at this point where we are comfortable enough with everything. Where we can we can jam things. We can enter into the spirit that Mitch and Noel and Jimmy entered into as they approach these songs. And so things like Voodoo Child, we definitely jam on that. We kind of do it as the record. But our own things in and we do we literally just jam and see where we go we never know where that's gonna be typically it's after the second verse but it might not be it's kind of all open and up in the air and we're just working off each other's signals on stage and making some magic because you just never know what's gonna happen who's gonna lead it is it gonna be drum led is it gonna be bass led Um, quite often it is um, which is surprising for uh, an act that's basically guitar led sometimes you know the bass leads it out and does Steve does some crazy things on the bass in a really cool way and I will you know really cut back on the guitar I'll just not play at all and just give him the space to go a bit crazy because it's cool you know if it co- if it's cool on stage if it feels good people are digging it then it's cool universally so That's what we've done there. And some of my favorite things to jam, um, we we jam the the kind of extended outro for All Along the Watchtower, which is just lovely chords to, you know, to put some melodic solo stuff to. They're great chords. Um, Boulder's Love is also really great chords. We do an extended outro of that. And um, my favorite of favorite of favorites really, is hear my trainer coming? It's just the perfect format for for jamming out that song in a way you know, basically based on how you're feeling and how it's going and what the audience uh, are into. But we play there's so many different versions, like I already said. But we play the probably the slowest version Jimmy ever did, which is I think from the Monterey pop no. I tell a lie, it's the Miami Pop Festival. The Miami Pop Festival, there's a couple of, I think, either a couple of different days, or one's the afternoon um, show and one's the evening show, but whichever one it is, we play the slowest version. And it's got a, a real hypnotic groove at that tempo, which is why I like it. And it just opens up the the forum to to jamming, to see where it goes. And I think the reason I like it also is because if you listen to it carefully, Jimmy was such a master of the dynamic in that song, okay? It's not much to it, it's basically a vamp on E, same way the kind of Voodoo Child is, but just in a different type of thing. And a couple of other chords, um, you know, in the bridge, I think, it's an A and a D. But basically, it's vamped on E. Just with that basic framework, it means that the only thing that you can adjust to give the ear and the people listening in the audience an interest and to maintain their interest in uh, what's being played is basically with the volume dynamic and how much guitar and how little guitar there is. And sometimes there's no guitar at all, Sometimes the guitar is played quite quietly, sometimes it's played at a medium volume and sometimes it's played full volume and obviously going from full volume balls to the wall type thing to to no guitar and almost silent is a massive, massive drop down for the audience. And, and the biggest, you know, if you build it up high, then you've got a great height to drop them from. And so therefore you can just plummet them down to almost silent. And those are just dr- so dramatic and so effective. And I guess why I, that's why I love that one, because it's, um, it's just got those peaks and things in it that I, I love. And the Hendrix Strat sounds lovely and the fuzz face works really well on that track and and for all the sonic reasons um but yeah i guess that's my favorite if anybody asks me what's my favorite track i love boulder's love because the chords are great i love watchtower and i love hear my trainer come in i also love um like a rolling stone which is obviously not one of jimmy's but again he did Play that many times in many different variations, and weirdly enough, again, my favorite version of Jimmy's, and I think this one was at Monterey, is the slowest version. He did um, it's kind of the standard versions everybody's familiar with, which is kind of mid tempo, which he sings um, I don't know, four out of five verses and finishes the song. But there's a slower version where he, he puts a solo in as well. And it's not a massive, you know, pyrotechnic, screaming, face-melting Jimmy solo. It's very restrained, um, very tastefully and very, very beautifully melodic. In fact, I hadn't heard that song played by Jimmy until we started this project and I started poking around on Spotify. And then I found this track and it was so melodically rich. And honestly, I hands down would say it's the most beautiful song played by Jimmy that I've ever heard. That particular slow version with the solo is just so gorgeous. For me, it blows me away. And when I heard that, I think it's a 10 or 12 minute version. When I heard that on Spotify, I said, this has got to be in the set. We have to play this song. I know it's not one of Jimmy's, but the way this is played is just exceptional. And so those are probably my my top four or five that we play. I mean, all the classics are great, but um, probably the less familiar ones and the ones that I get to just enjoy from an educational point of view, as well as a player, you have to be a listener and uh you know a connoisseur of these these songs and also what he what he did with them so that's the songs that's the set and uh yeah if you're thinking about putting a Hendrix thing together keep in mind that you might have 50 songs and um only 20 minutes of material because they're all 2 minutes and 10 seconds how on earth do you put something like this together? And why? Why now? Well, for me, uh, the idea occurred to me when I was giving a guitar lesson. Okay, I, I played Jimmy's stuff here and there for, for many years. In fact, you know, Jimmy was my first guitar hero. I was about 16 or 17 playing electric guitar and I heard Electric Ladyland. In fact, I bought Electric Ladyland on cassette, a black cassette, and it literally changed my life, as as you would hear many, many other people saying. But looking back on it now, it makes me giggle a bit because I knew Jimi Hendrix was somebody that I needed to pay attention to. And keep in mind, I'm a beginner. I've probably had my electric guitar maybe a year, a year and a half. I've been playing guitar for a fair few years, but but just, um, just open chords, literally. Not even bar chords, no scales, no licks, none of that. Just strumming, 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 songs, songs, songs. And so I immediately took to trying to learn. Jimmy's licks Now as a beginner, that's probably the worst thing you can do is try to learn something like Jimi Hendrix as a beginner and I remember getting really cross and frustrated and Just thinking damn it is playing guitar gonna be this hard Because I can not get more than a couple of notes out of this thing before You know, I'm just avalanched with it sounded like 50 million notes all at once You know, I could find the starting note and maybe a note three seconds in, but nothing in between. So it's funny because (laughs) that's the last piece of advice you'd give a beginner is listen to Jimi Hendrix and try and copy that. But that's what I did and I was pretty bloody minded about it too, because I knew there were were two people that I knew I had to pay attention to, whether I liked their music or not, was Hendrix and Clapton. Now, I wasn't a massive fan of Clapton at the time, but being from England originally myself, and this is before Google, before the internet, before everything we take advantage of now and take for granted, he was just the most accessible guitarist Around Most accessible, I mean, he was often on British television. You know, some of his performances at the Albert Hall were, were aired on British television. There was a couple of um, videos you could buy of him performing. Um, you know, you could go in and buy a, a VHS cassette of one of his gigs. In I got one from 1986 with him, Phil Collins, Greg Fillingames and Nathan East. So, I wasn't a massive fan of the stuff that Clapton was putting out in the kind of 89 1991 period. Um, but his, his older classic stuff with the blues breakers and with Cream, um, I, w- I was very interested in that. So I set about with my cassette player and the pause button trying to learn those things, note for note. And I didn't study music, I didn't have a teacher to teach me electric guitar or scales or anything. Um, I did send off to America for about six cassettes uh, called the Metal Method, which is, um, I, th- I think it's still around, I see Doug Marks, who was the chief instructor guy, still on YouTube, so. He's probably teaching the same kind of stuff, but I had six lessons on cassette that I got my aunt who lived in the United States to send me for, I don't know how much it was, but it seemed quite a lot. And it came with a booklet and a cassette. So that was my only, um, my only reference, my only, um, my only information about how to play guitar was what I could um, glean from putting Clapton, uh, Clapton's videos on pause or half speed, those things that I just sent off from the United States. And also, I do remember um, the South Bank show, which was a kind of arts program, a late night Sunday arts program in the United Kingdom airing um, what, which was uh, a piece on Jimi Hendrix which is called A Film About Jimi Hendrix and it was a kind of biographical thing so that was interesting for me to, to know his story and how things came about but also in that was um, all his music and some of it I didn't even realise was his music till years and years and years later like some of the stuff off Axis of Love um that was used in kind of for background music over the narration and over some of the um, non-musical performance clips of Jimmy or Swinging London. Um, I just didn't, didn't know it was him. But I do remember in that documentary, in that piece, seeing about eight seconds of Jimmy playing Red House in Stockholm. It was in black and white and he was playing that SG with three humbucking pickups, that white SG and it like I said it's a, it was a clip of about eight seconds but um, I jumped on that I thought I was trying to learn blues playing as well and I, and I kind of picked up on that particular clip Because my brain went well. Hey, it's Jimi Hendrix playing and it's also a pretty slow song so I could probably learn to play those 8 seconds of red house but boy was i wrong i couldn't i couldn't even play the red house stuff there was just so many notes in there i can do it a little bit today but i always remember that notion in my head oh this is a slow song i could probably play a bit of this and then after 4 or 5 weeks i'm burning out that video cassette pause, rewind, on pause, rewind, trying to pick out the notes, Big, completely stumped, going, I am never going to get this stuff. If I can't even figure out a slow song, how on earth am I going to do a faster song? So, there were times I despaired, as um, I think everybody does when they learn to play an instrument. You know, there's a plateau, there's Regular parts where it just seems like an impasse. You just cannot get something and you feel like that is a massive roadblock and that's the be-all and end-all of your relationship with the guitar. If you can't get that, then the whole thing's screwed. But eventually I I got over that and I don't know whether I moved on to learning something else or what, but I I stuck at it and I, I guess... I don't know if I knew this at the time but I know now that sometimes when you're trying to learn something you can only get it to a point before you can't go any further for the skill level you're at at that point point. and the only thing that needs to happen is the passing of time. You need to come back to it in six months or a year when you've done a lot more playing of other stuff, a lot more muscle memory. Uh, Just a lot more brain percolation and getting stuff under your fingers and then when you come back to it. Actually, it seems easier And that's the same with this project. I mean, I haven't really played any of these songs for, For many years apart from that intense period when I tried to learn songs off electric ladyland I do remember making some progress. And I, I do remember remembering, oh, I'm making some progress when I managed to get one lick um, that Jimmy played in All Along the Watchtower. And, and, and kind of nailing it. Because it had a little kind of funky, well not funky, but his playing had a kind of rhythmic funk um, in, in one of those bits. It's not the main solo but it's just a tiny look at the end. And I thought, yes, I've got that. I've nailed that one. Dude, it was high fives all around, but there was nobody for me to high five with because I was an only child, but I was high-fiving something going, nailed it, nailed it. Do you winning dance? Do you winning dance? uh uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh of course i'd only nail one lick out of it was probably about three seconds out of an entire six minute song but for me that was a massive glory moment and so to return to these songs years later it was wonderful to rediscover them again firstly sonically because i had lots of jimmy stuff on cassette and not original cassette either but cassettes I'd copied from other people, so the, the recording quality wasn't that great. There was lots of hiss, and some things were in mono, and it was just quite muddy. So to come back to learn this kind of stuff when there were digital copies was just a blessing. Um, just to be reacquainted with the songs in s- such a more sonically rich way than, than my memory, remembered them to be was awesome and also do more research on Jimmy himself I read Kathy Etchingham's book about her life with Jimmy, Kathy Etchingham as I'm sure you know is Jimmy's uh, long term girlfriend, they lived together for quite some time and now um, if you go to London you can actually go to their flat that's been restored um, to it's former glory exactly with all the furnishings and everything that um, Jimmy and Kathy had when they lived there so I read that book Kathy's actually bizarrely um, one of my friend's mothers. so he told me this a long time ago uh, probably about 12 years ago after he came over to, to see me Um, We had just moved to New Zealand and we literally had bought I think a table and chairs that day for weeks we just sat on a rug on the floor of our rental flat because all our stuff was on a ship and was gonna take three months to get here so he came to see us he came to visit New Zealand from the UK because he was uh, coming for the snowboarding season and uh, we had lots of wine and talked long into the night. But at some point, he he kind of said, well, I, d- I don't know how we got onto it. Because it was a long time ago and it was, a, you know, quite a bit of alcohol was was imbibed. But he said to me that his mum knew Jimi Hendrix. And I was kind of fascinated by this. And I said, you know, well, how well did he, she know?" Jimmy and he kind of very reluctantly revealed well she knew him really well <laughs> they kind of went out with each other for a good couple of years in fact they lived together and I scoffingly said what so you're telling me your mum's Kathy Etchingham and he looked me straight in the eye and shrugged and went yeah that's exactly what I'm telling you and for a moment I was waiting for the corner of his lips to turn into a smile and for him to take the mickey out of me for believing such a bizarre coincidence. But actually, he didn't. <laughs> he did not. He was actually very uncomfortable with what he was revealing. And it was at that point when I knew he wasn't joking, honestly. I completely lost my shit. I could not sit still. I was just going, Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't believe... How how is this possible? I was freaking out, man. Like in a good way. But I was kind of excited. So happy. Over the moon. Amazed at the, the probability of that happening. It was just... just literally blew me away. Not me for six. I just, I couldn't shut up. But at the same time, I was speechless, if that makes any sense at all. And um, yeah, so he was was like, calm down, mate, calm down. Look, it was a long time ago. She's my mum. Try not to make a big deal out of it. There's been a few things in our life that have, um, you know, been affected by this. And um, I don't need somebody else getting weird about it. Which I didn't really understand what he was talking about back then, a decade ago. But when I read Cathy's book, when I read his mum's book, just uh, about a year ago, about oh, maybe a year and a half ago, I, I read it and reread it several times. Um, and he and he's mentioned in there, <coughs> you know, Mitch and Noel coming over and playing with the children and that kind of stuff. He was one of them. Um, he was there when when um, Monica Daneman went over to discuss things with Kathy and Mitch and Noel, um, and uh, yeah, had a few weird things. Obviously, some some press, you know, some stalkers, some crank calls. Uh, when the whole Monica Daneman case came to fruition, and after her suicide, um, yeah, things got a bit a bit tense and weird for Kathy and her family at that point um, so that's probably what um, why he was so reluctant to reveal it to me but reveal it he did and you know I can't be the only one who, who knows <laughs> but man it was <clears throat> the funny thing was I, it was so deep and vague in my memory because it was so long ago and we would had so much wine and it was late in the night that I, I, I kind of spoke to him on Facebook and <clears throat> I didn't want to say, hey, do I remember this right? Is your mum really Cathy Etchingham? Because I remember his reaction last time, if I, if I remembered it correctly. So I kind of said to him, hey, I, I'm thinking about buying your mum's book. Um, What do you reckon? Or could you get me one? thinking, well, if I don't remember it correctly, then he's going to go, oh, what are you talking about? Um, But he came back and he said, oh, I think it's out of print now, but you can still get it on Kindle. And I was like, dude, no way. (laughs) It's true. I remember it correctly. And um, so that really helped me understand Jimmy beyond his music, you know, um, him as a person, as a human being. And, and the things that, that happened over the course of those years between when Kathy met him, which was literally his first day in London, um, and they went home together that night, um, until, well, until 69 at least, I think, when Jimmy was working on Electric Ladyland and started to be based in New York, and things started to fall apart. But it's a great read, and I, I consider Kathy probably one of the custodians one of the only custodians of the truth when it comes to jimmy and you know his true life there's a lot of kind of hangers-on and liggers and blaggers and bullshit artists people just trying to sell a book or sell a bootleg or, or sell something you know and they will just you know there was a there was a book recently by i think one of the of roadies one of Jimmy's roadies he roadied for a lot of other people but um, in this book he claimed that Jimmy's manager Mike Jeffrey um, killed Jimmy by basically holding him down and forcing red wine down his gullet literally drowning him in red wine Uh, and you know the the roadie guy claimed this uh, Mike Jeffrey confessed this before I don't know Mike Jeffrey was in a, a plane crash anyway But, yeah, this guy trying to sell this book claimed these outlandish claims, which, you know, may or may not be true, but nobody knows the truth and all of those who could tell us the truth are all now dead. But, obviously, that was something he was touting around, saying, oh, you know, I've got the truth about Jimi Hendrix's death to try and sell his book. But Kathleen made no such claims around that kind of stuff. It was a book about her life with Jimmy and being in London in the swinging 60s in general and all the other characters that she came into contact with and had friendships with and had relationships with things like Brian Jones of the Stones and Keith Moon of um the Who and, and people like that. You know, she was there and uh, as an eyewitness it's very very enlightening and and a rich a rich story because there's so many things we take for granted now that it just really helps put put things in perspective so for me as as a I kind of almost took it as an actor's role not just hey let's copy everything Jimmy played but understand the guy understand his motivations understand his values you know he was a very gentle soul Jimmy very He played the Innocent a lot, but he was actually very slyly hip, and he knew far more than he was letting on. Um, I guess what I don't really know about Jimmy is between, you know, there's plenty of stories of him getting his first guitar, and then stories of him on the road with Ike and Tina Turner and Little Richard and, and the Isley Brothers, people like that. But I don't really know what happened in between where he crammed in all that practice time to become the musician he did because he kind of seemed to come out fully formed massively talented from the moment anybody heard him and that can't be right (laughs) we all had to practice sometime somewhere so where did he do that and who was he with and i i would i like to know that kind of story well that's all we got time for With my ramblings this time around. So uh, I will see you in the next one. And don't be late. (laughs)